Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of Colossians. The New Testament book of Colossians and Colossians and chapter number one. The book of Colossians and chapter number one. We're already discovering the book of Colossians is a very important book. We know that each of the epistles of the New Testament have a purpose of something they are attempting to do, whether it was writing to the church of Corinth to try to correct their behaviors, and yet the theme of that is immaturity, that he says, listen, you're immature, I'd like to speak to you as adults, but you're acting like spiritual babies, so i got to treat you like babies. Then we come to books like this, which is definitely a very mature book. And again, the reason why it's a very mature book is because there's a cult beginning to form in the city of Colossae. And God, through the inspiration of Holy Spirit, has prompted Paul to write a letter to nail down their faith, to put some things and nail it down a mile deep, so that way when the cults and the deceivers and the liars and the false religions come, that these folks would not be dissuaded, that they will stay where they are, they will keep marching forward, and they will not be blown around with every wind of doctrine. We saw this morning that there was an emphasis on the doctrine of Christ, on what Christ has done, and that in all things he might have the preeminence, that it must be all about Christ. And remember, that's where all of the cults and every religion has to answer, what do you do about Christ? And that everything must line up with the biblical view of Christ, not the Christ of Hollywood, not the Christ of our music, not the Christ of uh, our own imaginations, not the Christ of someone else. You need to know what the Bible has to say for yourself. Well, as we continue on, we see that not only do we have to nail down the person and the deity of Christ, but we also have to have nailed down the work that Christ did on our behalf. Notice with me in the book of Colossians chapter number one. The book of Colossians chapter number one, and notice with me in verse number 20. The book of Colossians chapter one and verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, would you mark a phrase that we find in the book of Colossians chapter 1? The book of Colossians chapter number 1, and notice with me in verse number 21, the very end phrase, yet now hath he reconciled. Yet now hath he reconciled. And with the Lord's help, we'll speak more about Christ's work in this idea of reconciliation. Yet now hath he 
reconciled. If you don't mind, let's go to the Lord together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you now, we're just asking that you would just give us wisdom and give us discernment. Help us to understand more about the person of Christ and the work of Christ and have it nailed down so deep that we can never be dissuaded, that we can never be deceived, that we never leave that firm foundation of what your Bible clearly says. Lord, I'm asking that this would be a help to someone now and that we could be reminded of the goodness that you have towards us. Lord, be with me, be with my strength, my mind, my energy, and let it be for the listeners. I know that we've had a busy week, the busy couple weeks, and now it's a time where we're trying to catch our breath. I'm asking that this would not be a waste of time or a checkbox, but yet this would be a help and give victory in someone's life who needs it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The word reconciled is an important word we see here, and the word reconciled means to bring two parties back together into agreement. It's an important word. In fact, if you don't mind, just as a review, let's cover the means of reconciliation. The means of reconciliation. We know that there are four words necessary to describe what must happen before salvation can be offered to us. Now, we hit this again last week, and we're going to hit it again this week. Why, preacher? Because we have to have it nailed down. These four words were so important that during the 17-1800s in American colonies, they taught these words to first graders. Why? Because if people understood these four words, what would happen is that they can never be pushed away, dissuaded, blown away on the doctrine of salvation, of what salvation is. Now, remember that we start off that there are two parties. There's God and there's man. And that God, because of his holiness, cannot allow man to approach him. And man, because of the sin that he has in his life, cannot approach a holy God. And so we have two parties that are irreconcilable. Both of them have things that must be taken care of. This sin that is the wage between them. This sin has come between them and this sin must be taken care of before there's any hope of reconciliation. Now, may I pause right there? Since we already hit it last week, we'll do more commentary this week on it, that so many people want to erase this idea that there's sin in between God and man. They want to go ahead and try to attempt to say that man can approach God at any time. And we understand that God has given the availability, but it is because of the shed blood of Jesus. Otherwise, we could not approach God. In fact, you go back to the Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden, you had Adam and Eve living with God in harmony and fellowship and one sin was enough that God had to remove Adam and Eve from the garden. We could see that those two parties could not be reconciled. And as much as Adam could say, but God, but God, we want to stay here. God said, you cannot stay here. You cannot. This sin has now put a wedge between us. This sin has put a barrier between us. And it has to be solved. You cannot underemphasize this importance of sin putting a barrier between us and God. Now, again, why am I shouting this? Because today, false religion has tweaked it. They sounds good, but what they want to do is try to erase this idea of sin. 
And they want to just say, well, God just loves you as you are. And that's true. However, sin is still in the way. And sin must be dealt with. We're in the book of Colossians chapter 1, nailing down some things that the Apostle Paul is trying to put us an emphasis on. And we're putting together these four Bible words that they're described throughout the Bible, many of them in the book of Colossians, describing these four words that must be accomplished before salvation is made available to us. And if we have these things nailed down, we will not be dissuaded on salvation. We'll have it nailed down and no one could lie to you. No one could deceive you. So we understood that first of all, that there's a great gulf fix between God and man, that sin is the barrier. Keep that in mind. We'll see that later in the passage about sin being a barrier, but In order for man and God to be reconciled, which is the word we see a couple times in this passage, sin must be taken care of. Well, the wages of sin is death. That man, in order to pay that wage to get to God, has to die. Well, you can't do a lot of fellowshipping if you're dead. That's a problem. And God cannot reduce his holiness or reduce sentence because he is holy. That sin must be paid for. So that's what Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ robed himself in flesh, and we spoke about that this morning, and came down in this earth and paid the price that you and I owed God. We call this Bible word substitutionary atonement. The idea of atonement means that he paid our price. The word substitutionary means he took my place. He died not just for me, he died as me. He was my substitute. So Jesus Christ paid that our price for the wages of sin is death. He paid that price on the cross of Calvary. Now the next word that must be dealt with is the word propitiation. That's a big fancy legal term. The word propitiation means the appeasement of God's wrath. That because of our sin, the wages of sin is death. That sin must be taken care of because of God's holiness. Well, the way the payment that Jesus made on the cross of Calvary was enough. How do we know it was enough? The resurrection of Jesus Christ was evidence that God was satisfied with that payment. When Jesus Christ rose again, that God is no longer angry because of sin. His price has been paid. Jesus Christ was our propitiation. We go to man's side. Man owed God a debt, and that debt is death. Well, Jesus paid that debt, and he paid it with his blood. We call that word, which we brought up last week, redemption. The word redeemed means to buy back as from a slave market, that the Lord Jesus Christ paid our price. He paid the price for me, for my debt. He purchased me and the price was his blood. And again, we cannot underemphasize the blood of Jesus Christ. The requirement is blood. That without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And again, just giving some further commentary, there are many Christian religions that try to take the blood away from salvation. And you take the blood away from salvation, you also take away that price, because the price that was required was Jesus' blood. And without that shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now, with God's payment 
taken care of and God satisfied and man's payment taken care of, what's left is that each person in this uh, uh, party must agree to the terms. Well, God's already agreed to the terms and he proved it through through the (coughs) resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, each one of us must personally accept accept Jesus as our Savior. By the way, it is so simple that even a child could do that. Praise the Lord, this morning we had a child that made a profession of faith. That they had it secured and nailed down that Jesus paid their price. And they readily received that gift of salvation. When that happened, the moment that you receive salvation, we have this Bible term that we find in Colossians chapter 1, 20 through 22 of reconciliation, bringing these two parties back together in agreement. That what happens because that sin barrier is taken care of, we now can have fellowship with God. Because that sin barrier is taken care of, we can now have direct access to God. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a man or a priest or a preacher or a church to go between us and God. We can go to God directly ourselves because we can have fellowship with him. We can speak to him. We can spend time with him. That's the wonderful word of reconciliation. Bringing these two parties together in agreement. So we started off with the means of reconciliation and trying to nail down these four words necessary for salvation. And of course, anyone who's gone through discipleship has heard those four words. And anyone that spent any time here has heard those four words. Why do I repeat myself? Because you need to have this nailed down. If you understand those four words, you can never be confused about salvation. That's how important these four words are. And every born-again Christian who wants to be used of the Lord, you have to have those four words nailed down. You have to understand them. But once you do, you'll never have to worry about getting sucked up into a cult. You'll never have to worry about getting confused about salvation and whether I'm saved or not saved. This is important to nail it down. Well, as we come back to Colossians chapter 1, we now come to this text and we see not only the means of reconciliation, but we see the people of reconciliation, the people of reconciliation. Notice with me, if you don't mind, Colossians chapter 1. And notice with me, starting at verse number 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. Now, once again, we are seeing that emphasis of the blood of Jesus Christ, that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Colossians chapter one, verse 20 makes it very clear. How do we have peace with God? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is through the blood. We have to keep the emphasis where God places the emphasis. Having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself. So what Jesus Christ's goal was, was to reconcile things, to bring two parties into agreement, to allow sinners to have agreement with God because that sin barrier is taken out of the way. Notice as it goes on, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. We know that God's reign 
is over three different realms. God reigns over three different realms. But he, God, will only reconcile two of those realms. God will reconcile heaven and earth. That's his goal, and that's what he says here, that he <clears throat> reconcile all things to himself. I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. God wants to have reconciliation, peace, and fellowship between earth and us and God up in heaven. He wants to have reconciliation. Now, God's reign extends over a third realm whom he will not have reconciled, and that is the awful place called hell. That awful place called hell is set aside primarily for Satan and his demons, but man goes there by default because he refused to be reconciled with God. And because he refused to be reconciled with God, he is now separated forever because he did not accept that reconciliation. What's sadder is that no one has to die and go to that awful place called hell. Jesus' blood was enough to pay for every man and every sin that had ever been committed. God allowed Jesus to pay that price. But because people refused to accept the free gift of salvation, because they refused to acknowledge Jesus Christ as being the Savior of the world, because they refused to acknowledge that God is God, they're now set aside. And God will not offer them the hope of salvation. He will not give them a get out of hell pass. Now, again, we have other friends who believe something different. They may teach something called purgatory, where you go to a place to burn your sins away. I don't want to go anywhere that burns. But they teach, that's an unbiblical thing, that you could get out of this place called purgatory once your sins are burned from. The Bible says that if you go to that place without accepting Christ as your Savior, you'll never get out. There is no hope of reconciliation. God is not going to reconcile those who are in hell with himself. So that's important. God still reigns over hell. It is not Satan's hell. It is Satan's prison. Who owns the prison? God does. He is the sovereign ruler, the reigner of these three realms of heaven, earth, and hell. As we continue on, we could see that nowhere is man's alienation from God more evident than his thinking. Notice with me verse 21. And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies, how are we enemies of God? In your mind by wicked works. Nowhere is more apparent that we are away from God than our thought life. Our thought life betrays how far away we really are of God. And nothing is more evident of that by the way that man thinks about God. This is why we have thousands of religions out there. Not just Christian religions. We got thousands of religions, period. Because people try to imagine what they will of God, but without having the Bible as the source and knowing who God is, they come up with their own ideas and their ideas are alien, <laughs> meaning they're not the same way that God thinks. You ask a man 
And you could take the smartest men of all of history, put them in a room and say, all right, I want you to solve the problem. How can someone go to heaven? How can someone have forgiveness of sins? How can they go to a perfect place? And they will rack their brains and they'll come up with a way. And this is what they'll come up with. Man must do something in order for him to get to heaven. But God says, you don't have to do a single thing. I've done the work. You have to accept the gift. By the way, this is why a lot of people have a hard time accepting biblical Christianity. Because in their minds, which are far away from God, they feel like they must do something in order to get salvation. Whether it's something as simple as showing up to mass. If I show up to enough mass, that God will accept me. Whether it's the common thinking that when I die, my good works will outweigh my bad. If I'll be able to slide right into heaven. Because their thinking is so foreign and away from God. Man's thinking is alienated between how they think about God. Again, we spoke this morning about Jesus having the preeminence. And we put a big emphasis about how big of a God he is. And the clear vision of Christ. But you let Hollywood take the Bible and they will come up with all kinds of garbage showing how their brain and their thinking is so far away from God and how God thinks. By the way, all of us are that away. That's why we have to spend more and more time in God's word and get closer and closer with him. The Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. Notice that God says we have to have our mind transformed. Why? Because our natural thinking is so far away from God. As a pastor, it is always fun to watch brand new Christians. I like new Christians. I'm not being mean, but to see that this is all foreign concept to them. Read my Bible every day. What is that supposed to do? Oh, you read your Bible every day. It'll change you. How does that work out? But it does. But they're thinking, how does this work? You take something as simple as tithing. God says, if you give 10% of your income, he'll double dog dare you prove that he will give you a blessing and that you couldn't contain it. A double dog dares you. Hey, when God double dog dares you, that's something to try. And you go, how does this work out? I give 10% of my income and I give it to God to worship him and I'm better off for it. That math doesn't add up. That's because man's thinking is completely foreign from God. You can live a lot better with 90% with God's blessing than you ever could with 100% without God's blessing. But you understand that's a foreign thought. Now, those of you who have been in the church for a while, it's now natural thinking. You're like, well, of course. But for those of who come in and they haven't begun to tithe. It's a, what this now, some of you might remember your journey as you begin to travel in the Lord. Some of the things when you were first told, you were like, what show up to church 
three times a week? What, what, what is this nonsense? But it works. Don't For those of you who've been here for a while, you need that Wednesday night. It's like the tent peg that puts it up. And if you're not here, you miss it. It becomes important. Well, for a person who's not in church, they're like, don't understand. Right? Our thinking is evidence that we're far away from God. By the way, you spend, so, <clears throat> you spend just a week away from the Bible and you find that your brain starts thinking, transforming back, conforming back to the world. You have to work it back up. You let, your, you let yourself be out of your Bible for a couple months. It's almost like you got to get restarted again because your brain is so foreign. By the way, that's why reading your Bible is so important. Once you stop reading your Bible, you could be at church for a while, but your brain will start reverting back to the world. And start becoming more and more foreign and alien from the way that God thinks. You understand this is all important. And God wants us to understand. Through our thinking you are alienated. And notice this. Enemies in your minds. Meaning that the way that we thought made us enemies. All of us that are honest with ourselves can very much agree with that. There are many times my mind was against God. How do you know? I don't want to go to church. Have you ever been there? We just got through two weeks of camp. Some of you might have woke up that way. I don't want to go. <laughs> Our brains alienated, become enemies of what God wants to get accomplished. God says, go pass out a track. I don't want to pass out a track. We've now become an enemy of what God wants to get accomplished because our thinking hasn't lined up. We could get in the way of what God is doing and by default become God's enemy because we're in the way because of our thinking. We need to be the greatest thing we could do on a daily basis is to read the word of God for ourselves and allow him to transform our minds, to change the way that we think. And you don't have to force yourself to change the way you think. You just need to be obedient to the Lord, stay in your Bibles, and God will transform it. He will renew your minds. And you'll think a lot differently now than what you did before. In fact, just a little survey. How many of you know that your brain is completely different It's thinking than it was before you were saved or five years ago or whatever? Yes, God changes us. And the more that we spend time with God and the more that we spend time in prayer and the more that we're obedient, the more that we're going to start thinking like God and having our mind transformed by him. This is important. This is a part of that reconciliation that God wants us to be with him. But it is sin that alienates us from God, both spiritually, morally, and mentally. When people have sin in their life, they refuse to confess. They put up a barrier between them and God. And they make it so their thinking begins to change because they'd rather have that sin than be close to God. So we spoke about the means of reconciliation. We mentioned the people of reconciliation. One more thing, if you wouldn't mind, the purpose of reconciliation. The purpose of reconciliation Notice with me as we continue on. In verse 21, it says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your minds by wicked works, yet now 
hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So he has reconciled us to God in the body of his flesh through death. Once again, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the death of Jesus Christ, we are reconciled to God. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus paid that price for us so we can be reconciled to God. Now, when this happens... The purpose of reconciliation is not simply just to forgive us of our sins. The purpose of it is so we can have fellowship with God. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can then be presented to God, brought to God in three different ways according to this passage. Notice the three ways that we can be presented to God. Again, verse number 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you, notice it's to God, to present you, first of all, to present us holy. To present us holy. Now, the holiness of God is very important. The holiness of God tells us that God will not stoop to our level. The holiness of God teaches us that we have to go up to his level. We, because of sin, we can't go to God on our own. Jesus paid the price for us, and now we can be brought up to God through holiness, through being set apart to him. That word holy with a simplistic um, definition carries the idea perfect. The more complete definition is to be set apart for God's use, to be set apart unto him, to be set apart, to be put with him. If we are going to be holy people because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and we're able to be now, we now change the way we live so we can get closer to God. By the way, there is a correlation between our behavior and our works to our holiness. We could say, I'm a Christian, but still watch filthy TV. That doesn't make you more holy. There are actions that we can do in our life so we could be presented to God holy. And we now have the ability to do that because of Jesus Christ. We can approach God and we can change our lives. We could take things out of our life. We can add things in our life in order for us to become more holy. By the way, this is a command. This is why God says in the book of first Peter and why he says also in the book of Deuteronomy, be ye holy as I am holy. Our responsibility is to conform to God, not try to make God conform to us. By the way, as we were speaking about this morning about Jesus Christ, that's man's natural tendency is to try to make man or God more like us. I like studying history. And the thing about history in studying Greek mythology is that all of the Greek gods were just like big supermen with powers. They were full of deceit and lying, cheating and lasciviousness and immorality. They were not role models and they definitely were not holy. Zeus's exploit by himself, cheating on his wife constantly. And by the way, that was their chief God. What did they do? They took an image of God and made it like unto man. God says, you don't do that. 
You come to my level of perfection and you change the way that you think. You change the way that you are and approach my level. And the closer we get with God, the more we're going to think like him. The closer we get with God, the more that we'll be able to have fellowship with him and be with him. And that's because of the holiness we now can have in our life because of what Jesus Christ to do. That we can be presented holy, <coughs> perfect. Notice something else. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death present you holy. Notice this next word, unblameable, unblameable. Man is full of flaws and blemishes. Most of you don't even like your physical look. I know at camp, we all have an image of how we are compared to how we really are. In my mind, I'm still thin and skinny and spry and athletic and all that fun stuff. Then watching the playback video, I'm going, who's that blip? I don't think of myself as fat. Now, I'm being honest. Most of us have a different image of ourselves than what we really are. Uh, We all have that in our mind. We all have blinders. We all have things. But maybe there are some things that you hate about yourself. You can't stand looking in the mirror because you don't like the blemishes. You don't like the things that come back at you. We are full of blemishes. We're always stumbling. We're always failing. We're always falling. But yet, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, when he looks at us, he looks at us and he sees us unblameable. Unblameable. The only thing that God sees when he looks at us because of the shed blood of Jesus is the perfection of Jesus Christ. That is a wonderful thing. By the way, we call this idea sanctification. In the Bible, there are three tenses of sanctification. In the past, we were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present tense, we are being saved from the power of sin. And in the future, we'll be saved from the presence of sin. What does that mean? In the past, we were saved from the penalty. Jesus Christ paid our price. And the moment that we receive the gift, we receive that. And we're now transformed. We now have got Christ's record on our account. In the meanwhile, while we're living here, because God is trying to make us more holy and be more along him, he has freed us from the power of sin. What does that mean? It means I no longer have to sin. As a Christian, anytime I sin, it's because I chose to sin, but I did not have to sin. I had a choice and I could have had a victory because of Jesus Christ. I no longer have to sin. I am freed from the power of sin and God's desire is that we get closer and closer with him that we get to the place where we're sinning less and less and less. Until one day when we die and he gives us a brand new redeemed body and we'll be saved from the presence of sin and our brand new redeemed body will no longer be able to sin against our Lord anymore. I'm thankful for that. But with this idea that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we accepted Christ as our Savior, when Jesus Christ (laughs) shed his blood, God looks now upon us unblameable as if we had no sin in our life. That's wonderful. He has so forgiven my sin, he no longer sees it anymore. That is a blessing because I racked up a whole bunch and I'm sure you have too. 
that we're no longer on or that we're no longer blamable. Our sentence has been paid. We'll no longer owe Christ, our God, the dead of hell ever again. In fact, the book of 1 John chapter 2 says that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says, my little children, if any man sin, um, um, <laughs> that these things are right unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, he have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What we see there is that word advocate is our lawyer. That if we do manage to sin, if we do mess up in the courtroom of heaven, Satan says, look at what they did. Jesus says, I object. That sin has already been paid for. Case dismissed. And that idea of Jesus Christ the righteous is a legal term that says, here's the lawyer who never lost a case. I like that one. That Jesus Christ has paid all of our debt and God no longer sees our sin because it was completely taken care of at the cross of Calvary. Even the sins I did in the future. Now, does that mean that I could go do whatever I want? No. In fact, it should do the opposite for you. It should say, I do not want to sin anymore because he paid all of my price. We find a third word here that because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we are now reconciled to God and that God, when he sees us, he got Jesus goal is to present to us holy and unblameable and unreprovable, unreprovable. This carries the idea that he can no longer yell at us because of our sin. He is, Jesus Christ was our propitiation. God is no longer angry at us because of our sin. That when God, <laughs> let's kind of do this illustration. We know that police keep criminal records on people, right? And so they have what is called a rap sheet. All right, let's look this guy up and let's see if we have any paper. There we go. He's done all this and this and this. And on this date, he did this and did this. And they could keep a record of everything he ever did. Well, God has a good record-keeping system. He keeps track of everything, even the things I didn't even know I did. He kept track of it all. But when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we accepted that free gift... Someone went in the records, took my stuff out, and put Jesus' record in there. So if God says, hey, I want to find the record of Scotty Bockhouse, someone would bring him the file, and it's empty. Because it's not my record anymore. My record's been taken care of. Someone put in there Jesus' record. I am unreprovable. That payment has been made, and it has been made completely. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now that's some shouting ground right there. Because I've done lots of awful things. And Jesus paid it all. Now that idea that that record is clear. Is not just saying that we are no longer. Uh, that we no longer have sin. What it is saying is that God views us as if we had never been sinners. Not that we have never sinned. But we had never been sinners. What does that mean? Do you ever think about the theological question, why does someone sin? You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are a sinner. You are a sinner from your mother's womb. You got it from your daddy. No one had to teach you to be a sinner. You are a sinner by nature. That is your default nature. That's why we have to correct children's nature because their default is sin. 
They want to steal cookies from the cookie jar. That's by default. You have to correct that. You leave them to their own, they're going to get worse and worse in sin. All of us do, and all of us did. But Jesus Christ paid that price. And when he paid that price, it's not looking at my record and say he no longer sinned or had never sinned. He took my record and erased it so cleanly, it's as if I had never been a sinner. That whole nature has been erased in God's eyes. That is a blessing. That is how complete the work of Jesus Christ was. Now, this is helpful. This is a blessing. Because there are so many people that think that God's work was not complete. What do we mean by that? They believe that you could get saved, but then you can mess up and then lose your salvation. But the Bible says that God has erased it all. The Bible term, by the way, a legal term in the Bible is the word justified. Just as if I had never been a sinner. That is how complete the work of Christ is. Now this morning as we read the verses above, it was talking about how big of a God he is. As we deal with the word, uh, the idea of reconciliation right after that, what is he trying to say? Our God is so big that he took my record and wiped it clean and made it as if I was no longer a sinner. That is a big God. That is an impossible God because I know what a sinner I am. But I also see what a savior he is. When we have this nailed down, this helps us quite a bit. Because none of us can ever be effective in serving God if we doubt our salvation. If we're trying to get saved all the time, well, I'm trying to keep saved, then what happens? We're serving in order to get something from God. God wants us to serve because of what he's already done. He's not putting a chain on me and saying, all right, listen here, I bought you, you do what I say, slave. What he is saying is that I freed you, now you have the freedom to use it however you want. My goal is for you to use that freedom to choose to serve me. That is the freedom that we have. That is the liberty that we have. I don't have to serve God. I get to serve God. I don't have to go to church. I get to go to church. I don't have to read my Bible. I get to read my Bible. It changes everything. And it gives me freedom in the Christian life. So dear friend, we talked this morning about the big God that we have. The question we have for you is, is he big enough to erase your account? Is he big enough to take care of all of your sins? Now, theologically, you may shake your head. But practically, you may still struggle. Am I saved? Am I really saved? Did God take care of all of it? This is where we have to accept by faith that God did what he said he was going to do. God is big enough to take care of all of your sins, to wash all of your stains away through the shed blood of Jesus. And though your sins be as scarlet, I shall wash you white as snow. That's how complete Christ is done. And we're not saying there's any magic words. It's believing God in his word by faith. This is what he said, and I can believe it. But pastor, you don't know what sinner I am. But I do know what a savior he is. But 
if you wanted comparisons, I'm positive none of you dragged people out of their homes and stoned them. But God had forgiven Paul completely and utterly. In fact, Paul is the human penman writing this at this time. If God can forgive Paul, he can forgive you. If God can wash all of Paul's sins away, he could wash certainly all the pipsqueak things that you have, no matter how big you think they may be. We have a savior who's washed it white as snow. And because we are now taken care of, our sin debt is taken care of, we can now have reconciliation with God. We can have fellowship with God. We could spend time with God. And if that is true, why don't you spend more time with God? What's keeping you from getting closer to God? Your sin has been taken care of. What would keep you from getting close to God? May it be because you still like sin. Maybe that you don't want yourself to change and be like God. What is it that keeps you from spending more time with him? What keeps you from fellowshipping more? He has given you free access. What holds you back? Some people say, well, you don't understand what a sinner I am. I don't feel like I could talk to God. Didn't you just hear? We wiped that all clean. Jesus took care of all of it. You can talk to God anytime and he wants you to. May I say, because we have a God who has all of time in his hand, that he has nothing but time for you. In fact, he is doing nothing right now, but waiting to talk with you. And when you refuse to talk with him, he's waiting for nothing. God wants you to spend time with him in fellowship. And we can because of the reconciliation of Jesus Christ through his blood. Through his blood, we have peace with God and we can have fellowship with God. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.